0: Welcome to the Mind Body Breakthroughs podcast, where we bring you amazing guests on the cutting edge of science, health, and business each week to share strategies that you can use to get the breakthrough you're looking for in your life. I'm your host, Dr. Nevada Gray. Joining me is my co-host, Chris Donahue. We're glad that you're joining us today. If you are enjoying our podcast, we invite you to hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. We love hearing from you. Today's episode is sponsored by the Paleo Pharmacist in the Keto Course. Have you ever wanted to learn about the ketogenic diet and how to implement a properly formulated ketogenic diet into your lifestyle? The keto course includes instant 30-day access to a one-hour one-on-one consultation, a month of unlimited email support, over 75 amazing videos, and printable 14-day meal plans, along with grocery lists that will speed up your weight loss and help break stalls. To learn more, see our show notes. The views expressed on the Mind Body Breakthroughs podcast are the opinions of the hosts and guests and are not to be taken as medical advice, as the hosts and guests do not provide medical care. Information is provided for educational purposes only. You should consult your medical provider in relation to your own personal health and prior to making any changes in your diet and fitness. Dr. Cecily Ann is a maternal fetal and obesity medicine physician, speaker, and president of Conceptual Health located in the Kansas City area. She became interested in obesity medicine after her struggles with weight loss. At the time of the birth of her second son, she reached her highest adult weight of 264 pounds. Through combining intermittent fasting and real foods, Dr. Cecily Ann has lost over 55 pounds. She now incorporates her personal experience, knowledge of intermittent fasting, and knowledge of obesity medicine to assist patients in achieving health beyond the scale. In addition to her clinical practice, Dr. Cecily Ann enjoys creating informative posts regarding health and wellness. You can follow her journey on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as the Fasting Doctor, or on the FastingDoctor.com. You can follow her medical practice focused on high-risk pregnancy and pre-pregnancy health on Instagram at Conceptual Health. Thank you for listening today. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We love hearing from you. And as always, don't forget to share with a friend who may find value. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Cecily Ann, how are you tonight? Welcome to the podcast.
1: Doing great. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: Yes. So am I. I've been looking forward to this all day. I'm a super fan of yours. I follow everything you do on Instagram and all the podcasts that you've been on. And I've been wanting you to come on this podcast forever. So thank you so much uh, for being here tonight.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. You put out so much great content as well, and your story is so inspiring that it really is a true testament of how lifestyle can really help with medical conditions.
0: Absolutely. And that's one of the things I'm so excited uh, to talk with you about because I put this on my story and we got quite a few questions. Uh, For those of our listeners that may not know who you are or your story, Um, your superhero story for how you got into uh, fasting and medicine. Can you share that for our listeners tonight?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I think like many people, um, I struggled with obesity in the past. And I was your classic, you know, yo-yo dieter. You try something, you know, move more, eat less, calorie counting, you know, the whole shebang, what we usually do, right, when we're trying to lose weight. Um, And it just didn't work. And after I had um, our second son, I was at my highest adult weight. Um, 264 pounds, and I was just like, I need to do something. You know, I didn't feel well. I had metabolic syndrome. I just was tired all of the time, and I um, tried, again, you know, move more, eat less, and I did lose weight, um, but then I slowly started to put it right back on, and so that's when I really started to delve into intermittent fasting um and then also changing my diet to try to incorporate more whole foods um and really try to decrease my processed sugar Um, and, you know, really just tried to reach for things that were from nature. And I was able um, to lose a significant amount of weight. Honestly, it was the easiest time I've ever had losing weight and really the only time in my life that I've been able to maintain weight loss. And so once I found like what it did for me, I became more passionate about telling really anyone who would listen about it, whether it were friends, um, colleagues, patients, like anyone who was interested in giving lifestyle a try, I wanted to share what worked for me.
0: Yes. And lifestyle is such a huge factor in mitigating risk for metabolic illness. And one of the things that I know you're very passionate about is uh, maternal and fetal health and pre-pregnancy and helping women um, mitigate their risk for high-risk pregnancies. Working as a pharmacist, I uh, dispense medications for high-risk women who are pregnant and also women that are trying to get pregnant and struggling with infertility. I know one of your other passions is, is PCOS. So I was wondering if you could kind of set the foundation for what, our risk factors are uh, prior to pregnancy and during pregnancy that uh, women face.
1: Yes, certainly. So I think, you know, everyone wants to be pregnant, right? Like yesterday, if you're in the process of trying to conceive, right? If you've decided it's the time, you know, that it's right for you to start a family, then everyone's like, okay, well, now I'll get pregnant. But we fail to realize that our baseline health prior to pregnancy really does affect and place us either at increased or decreased risk for pregnancy complications. Um, Metabolic health and insulin resistance plays into all sorts of pregnancy-related conditions as well. Some complications um, that insulin resistance can increase the risk for are gestational diabetes, or if you're currently a diabetic and attempting to become pregnant, um, your pregnancy will be more high risk compared to those who are non-diabetic. Um, preeclampsia is another condition in which we see, um, we don't necessarily fully understand the disease, but conditions, um, that are associated with insulin resistance also place people at higher risk of preeclampsia. And for those who may not know what preeclampsia is, that is um, high blood pressure when you're pregnant. Um, So there are a myriad of factors. If we're back on uh, discussing gestational diabetes or hyperglycemia during pregnancy, not only can this increase the risk for the mom, but it increases risk for baby as well. And there um, is a study of epigenomics and fetal programming where offspring born to diabetic mothers actually themselves have increased risk of cardiovascular disease, obesity, and all sorts of stuff, just from the fact that their mom had poor glycemic control while they were pregnant with them. So, I mean, they're just far-reaching impacts. And um, I think we sometimes negate to discuss that or negate to um, tell people how important it is to try to improve your health prior to conceiving.
0: Yes, and we have a layperson audience um, here with us tonight, so i I'm just curious if you can define what is metabolic health and what is insulin resistance? So as we progress in the conversation, um, our listenership has a foundation for what these terms are.
1: Yes. Because it's new for a lot of people. Yes, certainly. So when you talk about metabolic health, honestly, insulin resistance goes hand in hand. And so insulin is a hormone in our body, Um, which we need insulin. We need insulin to live. So when everything is working in perfect harmony, insulin actually serves as an appetite suppressant. Many people don't realize that. Um, But the problem becomes when we either live a lifestyle, so whether that's food, whether that's stress, um, sleep deprivation, poor gut health. All of these different things, lack of physical activity, all of these different things can um, lead to developing chronically high levels of insulin. And that's what we term insulin resistance. Probably it's more accurately referred to as insulin excess or having too much insulin. And so insulin also acts as a storage hormone. So when it's at levels that are chronically high, it can cause us to store fat. It can store, cause us to store fat um, in our central region, which is also known as um, abdominal obesity. And fat itself is not a you know benign tissue. Now we definitely need a critical amount of fat to survive, and it does have functions. But again. When you're getting fat in places in excess, that can release inflammatory hormones, which can then affect our heart, our blood pressure. It can cause our livers to store too much uh, sugar um, and lead to fatty liver. And it really can just create total misalignment. Um, with uh, our daily processes. And so um, a misconception is that if you have insulin resistance, then you're automatically going to be overweight or obese. And definitely that is one manifestation of insulin resistance, but it can also manifest itself in PCOS or having hypertension, even though you may not look like you should be hypertensive. So that's what we mean um, by metabolic health. It's mainly how is our body functioning um, and are we actually processing and taking in those hormonal signals in a correct manner so that we're not having excess insulin levels and then diseases that are associated with that.
0: Yeah, so it seems that so much is associated with insulin resistance. I know Dr. Ben Bickman just wrote this amazing book, Why We Get Sick, and he mm-hmm. spoke of insulin resistance being at the root of many illnesses. Um, one specifically, uh, PCOS. A lot of women uh, struggle with PCOS, uh, and that can lead to infertility. And I was just wondering if you could speak to your experience um what you've seen as far as the evidence and what you've seen in practice regarding pcos being managed with lifestyle and improving fertility
1: yes so lifestyle factors definitely can help with pcos um for anyone who may um struggle with pcos or struggle with infertility One, I always recommend you reach out to your care provider um, and actually make sure that your diagnosis is correct. So I have also seen many women labeled as having PCOS um, and either because they may look a certain way or whatever. And when you actually get down and they have an appropriate workup, uh, they find that there was a totally separate cause for their... Um, infertility. So I think one that's the first thing is actually make sure your diagnosis is confirmed. Now, when we talk about insulin resistance being a part of um, PCOS, there are a lot of things in our um, either lifestyle, so whether that's diet, um, our activity, our sleep, our stress that can promote chronically high insulin levels. And so that's why I like intermittent fasting because it's helping to address some of um, the root causes if insulin resistance is one of those. By going longer in between meals, you're not spiking insulin. And then over time, your body slowly requires reduced amount of insulin to carry out the same metabolic or life, uh, life processes that your body is doing. And so that's why I like to combine that, um, intermittent fasting and also addressing, um, nutrition as a cornerstone for helping people with PCOS.
0: What would be a recommendation, uh, for nutrition? Because I know that there are multiple diets that people adhere to. And I always encourage people figure out what works for you as far as, as far as your nutrition. But I was just curious if you can speak to, um, some of the lifestyle factors that we can consider when it comes to nutrition.
1: So I typically, I'm, uh, usually more of a low carb approach. Um, I find that works really well, but I will say, even if you're not low carb, if you look at your diet and try to remove or at least decrease the sources of processed sugar, that is a huge start for all people, whether or not you're plant-based, vegan, low carb, paleo, however you want to describe yourself, focusing on real foods um, is really a cornerstone. And the reason I say that, um, is because when you, you, could, you could be plant-based, um, but you still could be eating a lot of processed foods. And so those processed foods, especially if they have, you know, um, fructose or um, high fructose corn syrup or, you know, all the different things that we describe or disguise sugar as in those ingredients... Um, also if you have a lot of the, you know, seed oils, so like your safflower oils or canola oils or things like that, all of those things are very inflammatory and, or cause an exaggerated insulin response. And so just by reducing or removing the frequent, uh, reducing the frequency that those foods are consumed can help you use your endogenous insulin stores, um, more efficiently.
0: And besides nutrition, what are some other lifestyle factors that you would recommend for women in terms of sleep, mindset, exercise to uh, mitigate their risks prior to pregnancy or during pregnancy?
1: Yes. So in addition to nutrition, I really do believe that physical activity is important Um, and A lot of people underestimate just how sedentary they are. And so if you're new to incorporating physical activity, um, even if it's starting out with walking 30 minutes a day, four or five times a week, that's an excellent place to start. And then once you get that down, incorporating some form of resistance training. I think people assume that in order to do resistance training, you have to go to the gym. And that's not so. Using your body weight um, is a great place to start, especially if you're not um, doing it commonly. So um, what a a way to start could look like for someone who is not used to working out or not uh, used to incorporating resistance training. So for instance, you know, four times a week, start off with 30 minutes a day of walking and then increase that over time. And then on your off days, when you're not walking, you could begin with, um, three sets of 10 squats each and incorporate, um, three sets of 10 each again, of push-ups, and you could start there. And slowly build up your amount in each set. So you start with 10 for a couple weeks per set. Then the next week you're getting up to 12, you know, and then after that build up to 15. And once you feel like you could do those comfortably, then maybe you graduate from using the wall to doing modified push-ups on your knees, right? Um, And then with your squats, maybe you graduate from um, squats to then doing lunges or keeping up your squats and then adding some form of core exercises with sit-ups. And so you can progress over time and actually get yourself a really quick and efficient workout because remember, it's consistency. So if you kill yourself in the gym one week and then one day in a week and then you are so miserable afterwards that you don't work out again for two weeks... Like, you're not really better off than taking it a more uh, slow or gradual p- approach but being able to do it consistently.
0: Those are great tips. And I love the body weight because right now, with gyms closed or minimal equipment, we truly are our own gym. And the possibilities are absolutely with, us, uh, with that. I wanted to talk about another tool that we have in our toolbox, and that is fasting. And a lot of people have questions on this, especially uh, with the New, New England Journal of Medicine article on intimate fasting um, at the beginning of the year. It's become in vogue, and so many people have questions regarding this. And I was just wondering if you could set the foundation for our listeners. What is the difference between fasting and starvation? I think that's an important uh, Point to distinguish because when a lot of people hear fasting, they think starvation. So I was just curious your thoughts on that.
1: Correct. So I think we need to one, just set the tone where fasting is a voluntary absence of food. Um, you choose the time, you know, you pick how long you want to go, but the key is it is voluntary, meaning that you could stop. At any time that you choose versus starvation is either the complete absence of food out of your control, or for whatever reason, you have the inability to stop fasting, right? Or stop withholding food, even if food is available to you, right? And so fasting is out of, is in our control, starvation is not in our control. And it really goes, um, around mindset. And I think that really is the key way to differentiate the two.
0: So when we're fasting, and I know that you're very passionate about using this as a tool, uh, to combat obesity when we're fasting, what exactly is happening in our body, especially the first few days, because I know, uh, when people do an extended fast, myself included that day two and three is the absolute worst. But then after that, a euphoria kind of happens and all this magic happens, um, over the next few days after that. And I was wondering if you could just walk us through from the first day, maybe to like a seventh day. Um, for people that do extended fasting, what exactly is happening? And then what is the difference between that and intermittent fasting?
1: Yes. So when we are fasting, whether it's an extended fast or intermittent fasting, um, what is happening, or at least some of it is that we are reducing our insulin levels. And so you're actually flipping that metabolic switch from where you're converting, um, using glucose as your primary fuel to using ketones as your primary fuel. Um, and so that's why low carb, especially, um, ketogenic diets or states that promote ketosis, um, are thought to be, um, kind of a fast mimicking, uh, lifestyle or fast mimicking diet. So if you're doing an extended fast, you still, depending on what your, um, diet was like beforehand, you are gradually reducing those glycogen stores. You're changing over from, um, a reliance on glucose. Even if you're not completely reliant on glucose, if you're doing an extended fast, your glucose levels are going to drop even below what your um, baseline was. And so that's why sometimes those first few days can be a little uncomfortable um, or people kind of struggle a little bit in the first couple days, either with hunger or feeling sluggish sometimes is because you're really converting over to, um, beginning to burn fat and really use that as your primary source of fuel. And then once you, um, get past day two to three, your insulin levels usually, um, are at their lowest or at least approaching some of their lower levels. Um, you really have ramped up, um, ketosis. Um, you're now in a deep state of ketosis, which a lot of people find also, um, helps to release adrenaline and natural endorsements. And so that's why people are starting to get kind of like that fasting high or that fasting euphoria. Um, some people even, especially on extended fast are so revved up that they can have trouble sleeping um, where you're, you know, it's not that you don't want to sleep, but you just feel, you know, so um, revved up. And so sometimes people will use either magnesium, um, Epsom salt uh, baths or uh, foot soaks or whatnot, just to kind of calm them and relax them. So they're not wired all of the time. Um, And honestly, once you get past day three, um, or at least well into day three, a lot of people note that they're not hungry. And so at that point, um, you've repped off autophagy. It's really debatable after this point. Um, you know, you can find studies, um, regarding autophagy and, and some of those, um, cell cycling processes, whether once you get past day three to five, is there really any, um, true benefit of going longer than that, or are you reaching a lot of the benefits of autophagy and cell recycling between days three to five? And obviously, it will continue past that, but you know, at that point, it depends on who you talk to, whether you actually need to do fast longer than seven days or not. Um, but that's kind of what's going on during your extended fast. Um, versus intermittent fasting, you still do increase your baseline level of autophagy. I think that's a misconception where cell recycling and rejuvenation is an on or off switch. It's going on all the time at uh, low rates in our system, but we're talking about um, increasing that rate to actually help um, restore health. And you can also do that, um, with intermittent fasting. It's just, you need to be more consistent and then also pay greater attention to your, um, nutrition to get some of those same benefits.
0: So as far as intermittent fasting, how would somebody curate their day? What would a, what would a day look like in terms of when they should eat or when they should abstain, uh, from food?
1: So ideally you would, it's nice to um, try to have your eating window during daylight hours. So um, this is a really tight schedule and some people aren't able to follow it, but like if you open your window at 12, um, you know, at noontime with lunch, and then try to cut off your last meal by 6 PM, that really does help you to get maximum benefit of the circadian uh, rhythm. And if you are really ambitious, you might open your window at 10 a.m. and then stop it at 4 p.m. And that's trying to get meal consumption during um, waking hours. But the first thing I tell people is, honestly, you need to look at your your day. So if you know that with your schedule, it is not realistic that you're going to eat between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m., then don't do that, right? Because whatever you can do consistently is going to be the best for you. So um, for instance, if you um, don't get home until six or 7 p.m., maybe make the goal of you're going to try to stop eating by 8 p.m. and really try to cut out that really late night eating. Um, And so your window may be 12 p.m. where you can eat. It might be 12 p.m. to 8 p.m. And and that's fine. It's, again, really the consistency and then paying attention during your eating window to really try to cut down on snacking. That's a pitfall I see a lot of people make when they're saying, you know, I, well, I'm fasting from 12 p.m. Or I'm sorry, I'm eating from 12 p.m. to 8 p.m. So I don't eat after 8 p.m. But then they're eating every couple hours in that window. And so really trying to have discrete meals, not snacking to the best of your ability, um, and then really cutting yourself off from eating at a certain set time. Those, that's really the best way to begin intermittent fasting.
0: So how would somebody go about breaking that snacking addiction? Uh, because one thing I've noticed, my family has gone low-carb this year. And one of the things I've noticed is the struggle with unprocessing from processed food, as far as baked goods, bread, it's very hard for a lot of people to stop eating that. So we have the ditch and switch, we find low carb options, we find cleaner whole food options to try to get off that cycle. And this is something so many people struggle with. And I was just wondering if you could speak to that and what some of your suggestions or observations that you've noticed in your practice?
1: Yeah, it's definitely difficult. Um, the biggest thing I recommend or tell people is really try, you, you have to make it a stepwise approach. Um, and I think people beat themselves up because they just can't quit cold Turkey. Um, but take cigarette smoking, for example, cigarette smoking is very addictive. Um, And many people can't just quit cold turkey at first, right? And it often takes people several attempts to quit smoking. So if you really are used to having a lot of processed sugar in your diet, one, we have to show ourselves some grace because it's very unlikely that you're going to be able to quit everything all at once. So the approach that I use is I tend to focus on intermittent fasting first, um, because that definitely does have benefits and it's a powerful tool. And once you get intermittent fasting down, and honestly, that could be starting with 12 hours of fasting a day, just doing sunset to sunrise. But once you get intermittent fasting down and you're comfortable with that, then it's really time to really reevaluate um the diet. And so a thing that um sometimes again you have to pick what's best for you, but I like people to start off with the drinks. So a lot of people drink juice. Um they drink pop, uh even if it's diet, they drink sweet tea, all of these different things, their coffee, um, maybe chock full of tons of sugar. And so really working on reducing those um, sugary drinks, even if they say sugar-free, right? Reducing those drinks during your eating window really can assist with cravings. And so again, I like to break it up over, you know, a several week approach. If for the first couple of weeks you're going to work on decreasing diet pop or what have you, try to reduce those. Even if it's just removing one can a day, if you usually drink three or four, reducing one can for the first few days, right? And then break that down to two to where you can eventually convert to drinking mostly water or plain tea is a great place to start. And I find a lot of people will start to reduce sugar cravings if they can get a handle on that. And then once you're able to reduce the beverage drinking and really strive to making water your preferred drink, um, then it's time to look at some of those sweets that we have. Um, and going from, you know, tackling bread, I find bread is a nice place to start, or at least reducing that because there are so many um, bread substitutes, such as cauliflower, right, is like the imitator of everything, like you can make anything pretty much out of cauliflower. And so trying to replace bread with some form of cauliflower, rice cauliflower, fried cauliflower, what have you. And then again, every few weeks, looking at your diet, taking inventory, and seeing what you can reduce stepwise over time, um, I really think is a great approach.
0: Yes, that stepwise approach is definitely, I think, more doable than the cold turkey approach, uh, which a lot of people, they just feel like a failure because they tried it one day and it was a complete disaster. Um, But that stepwise approach, um, that's that's really great advice. One of the other questions that I wanted to ask you uh, was regarding the intermittent fasting. Now, this can be a long-term lifestyle change. Is is am I correct in saying that?
1: Correct, and I really think it should be. A long-term lifestyle change. So um, the thing too to remember is that how you fast today may not look the same two years from now, three years from now. Um, Some of it depends on if you're in weight loss mode or metabolic repair mode versus have you reached kind of where you want to be and now you're um, looking at maintenance. Um, It's an evolving process, but Certainly, periods of gut, re- gut rest should be incorporated into your lifestyle for life. You know, it should be a lifestyle.
0: And another question I wanted to ask you, in terms of resting the gut, we, we all know that compromised intestinal permeability can lead to certain illnesses such as autoimmune Um, illnesses. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of Dr. Alessio Fasano. He has a new book coming out called Gut Feelings, and he talks a lot about intestinal permeability and genetic predisposition and triggers that can lead to autoimmunity. And I was just wondering, um, in your experience, what you thought of fasting as a tool to improve intestinal permeability.
1: Yeah, no. So in terms of just its effects on the microbiome, it seems to have a favorable effect. And so in terms of when we look at gut permeability and issues like that, A lot of that comes from our gut microbiome at baseline, um, carrying more, um, if you will, hostile microbes that really do affect that gut lining. So if you're able to rest your gut and give it time to uh, repair itself and decrease, um, some of the permeability issues, especially like the gap junctions and whatnot, um, It should, in theory, assist with autoimmune conditions um, or at least help stop some of that onslaught. Um, You'll see people all the time um, anecdotally talk about um, how various autoimmune triggers seem to be decreased once they began intermittent fasting regularly, how their gut seemed happier. Um, There was an interesting study actually looking at people... um, that had respiratory diseases like asthma, different things like that. And they actually showed that, um, gut rest decreased several inflammatory markers in these patients. So, um, there really does seem to be a truth to the fact, um, of just the mind body gut, you know, physiologic um, connection there. And intermittent fasting definitely plays a role, um, which we're beginning to learn more about it as um, people become more interested in this line of research.
0: And I also had another question uh, just regarding an inter- interesting observation. That I noticed within myself. And then I saw a talk that Megan Ramos gave at Keto Fest regarding loose skin. And um, a lot of patients that incorporate fasting that have lost, you know, 100 pounds or more have minimal loose skin. And I was just wondering if you could speak to your observations regarding that.
1: I've noticed that as well. Um, now, I will say I still see people, I, I mean, because once you get over, you know, 100 pounds of weight loss. I mean, some people lose 100, 150, 200 pounds, right? There will be some loose skin, but I definitely will say that it's not to the degree that I've noticed, um, when people, um, have had bariatric surgery, you know, it's not the, um, kind of aprons, if you will, you know, that are sometimes left that may need surgical removal. Um, and the theory behind that, or at least one of the theories, again, has to uh, go back to autophagy, um, which is kind of that uh, self-cleansing, autophagy, you know, self-eating, um, where really that excess um, connective tissues being removed by macrophages and different cells um, within the body, and it's actually using some of that tissue for fuel during the fasting or fast mimicking process.
0: Yes, that's so interesting. When, when I heard that talk, because um, a lot of people are interested in how can they improve or prevent the loose skin from happening because um, I know that that's a topic important to a lot of people. Another question I had for you is regarding the postpartum period. Um, once a woman has had a high-risk pregnancy, that can take a lot out of you and then you're worried you know, about the health of, of your baby postpartum and you're trying to reclaim your own health. And I was just wondering if you could speak to your tips. Uh, for women that are in that postpartum phase uh, right now that are thinking about their health or maybe thinking about fasting, what what your thoughts are on that?
1: Yeah, I think during the postpartum period, at least I can speak to my uh, for myself as well, because we just had our third son, um, and you really, especially if you're breastfeeding, you really want to use those first eight to sometimes even 12 weeks to really make sure you get breastfeeding down and established. So if you um, had already converted to a whole foods lifestyle, then you would continue that postpartum because right during pregnancy, hopefully you were leading that same whole foods lifestyle. Um, but if not, and you're introducing it again, go gradually. And so I usually recommend first getting your nutrition down and really seeing how changes in your nutrition affect your milk supply prior to introducing really any sort of, um, intermittent fasting where you're going to fast over 14 hours. Again, there's not necessarily a reason to eat, you know, all night long just because you're breastfeeding, right? You can still certainly get in 12 hours of gut rest, but really focus on making sure that milk supply has come in first. You're getting used to a new baby. They stay up. You're sleep deprived. I mean, really focus on just really trying to get rest Um, because again, that's going to be a huge lifestyle factor, um, and really get that bonding with baby down first. And a lot of people are able to achieve that within the first eight to 12 weeks postpartum. Um, and then once you've gotten that down and your breast supply is established and you've addressed your nutrition so that you have energy to care for this child, then you can start playing with fasting links. Um, I typically don't recommend people try links over 16 hours while they're nursing. Um, at least when milk is the main supply for the infant, um, just because again, you don't want your milk supply to drop. Um, but once, um the milk is no longer the main source of calories. And usually that converts anywhere between six to eight months once solid foods are, um, introduced. Um, then some people may opt to throw in a couple of 18 hour fast or one meal a day. Um, but tend to reserve really extended fasting, um, for when you're weaning or if, um, your baby's over a year old and you're really, um, using breastfeeding more as kind of just a supplement, but it's it's really not necessarily their main form of of food or fuel.
0: Awesome! Thank you so much for for answering that. And then I wanted to um, conclude the podcast with you. Just had an amazing challenge during Thanksgiving to help people stay on track as far as fasting. What are some of your tips going into the holidays and some mindset strategies that uh, people can use?
1: Yes. So the holidays, I just like to remind people um, there's nothing wrong with the holiday because it's a day. The problem is, is that we then use the holiday to become holla month or, you know, holla three months or like, you know, and use that as a reason to say, oh, well, I'll just get back on track afterwards. But the problem is you can put on a ton of weight if you just completely abandon your whole foods lifestyle um, during that period. And then you're bringing an excess weight into the new year. And then you spend the first part of the new year trying to lose weight that you didn't have to put on in the first place. And so... Um, really trying to stay diligent with your fasting schedule and really also honestly declining those treats at work and, and the mindset that you just have to get into, because I think the mindset is everyone's like, Oh, it's a free for all. And I'll just start later, but don't let, don't let yourself get caught up in that mindset. So if you want to say, you know, once a week, if someone's bringing in something to the office and if you choose to indulge in that so that, you know, whatever, for whatever reason you choose that, if you say that's going to be that one day a week, then it really can't be, okay, well, guess what? Then tomorrow someone else brought something. And then the next day someone else brought something in, you know? And so I personally find it easier to just abstain from the office place kind of mentality around that season. Um... I really try not to partake in things just because they're there. If people are eating donuts or bringing in all sorts of things, you know, I really do try to stick to my fasting schedule. And that's not to say I don't ever have a treat, but honestly, then I save that and I do it with my family um, because I know my family is very supportive of my health goals, and I'm supportive of the health goals for my family um, because I want us all to be around as long as possible. Where the truth of the matter is everyone around you is not necessarily as invested in you as you are, or the people who love you. And so it really is just, um, a mind shift that really needs to occur. And once you get that mindset down, um, that's something that can carry you not only through the holidays, but just through life in general and really don't look at it as deprivation Look at it as, is this bringing you closer to where you want to be, or is it taking you further from where you want to be? And and really, we should evaluate everything in our lives like that, right? Whether it's our career, our personal relationships, goals that we have, is this moving us towards that person that we really want to be for ourselves, or is it moving us further? And things that are consistently moving us further from our goals are things we really need to reevaluate, and should those things be in our lives at all?
0: Yes, that's fantastic advice. I love all of that. And I'm curious, what's in store for you for 2021?
1: So 2021 is going to be a big year for me um, personally and professionally. I am opening my own medical impra- uh, my medical practice to incorporate still caring for women with high-risk pregnancies, but also um, women who are interested in becoming healthier prior to pregnancy, so that maybe they won't need me when they are pregnant. They won't have to see a high-risk specialist because they're, uh, you know, have improved their health that much. Um, that's what I am embarking on. My practice name is conceptual health. Um, And I really just look forward to being able to provide information for women who are currently in a high risk situation, helping um, them to integrate lifestyle into that situation and helping um, women prior to and after pregnancy, just really being able to really have um, a true grasp on health and wellness. I'm, I'm very excited for that.
0: Congratulations. I'm so happy for you. And I know that you're going to help so many women out there for women that uh, would like to work with you, or I'm not sure if you provide coaching. Um, I know you have a fasting group on, on Facebook, where, where can people find you?
1: Yes. So if you're interested in coaching, um, and for people who don't know, there is a difference between coaching and actually telemedicine. So coaching involves um, really no medical advice. We can't you know, give information on how to adjust medications or things like that. And so if you live outside of the states of Missouri or Kansas, where I'm licensed to practice, but you would like to work with me, then um, you can always visit my website, thefastingdoctor.com. Um, and that's probably the best place to find me or on my Instagram, which is The Fasting Doctor as well. Um, if you're interested in telemedicine services um, as of the new year, then you can visit um, my website, conceptualhealthkc.com. Or you can find me on Instagram as Conceptual Health and shoot me a DM um, uh, if you live, again, in the states of Missouri or Kansas. That's where I'm licensed to practice. um, And you can reach me either of those ways.
0: That's so awesome. Thank you so much for being here tonight. I know our listeners are absolutely going to love this podcast. And I'm just curious, what would be your final uh, piece of wisdom for us tonight? your your parting words of advice
1: I would say again show yourself grace start slow um comparison is the thief of joy so if you're starting off and you can do 12 hours of fasting that's excellent you're doing great um if you start off and you can do 16 hours of fasting you're doing wonderfully um Let your journey evolve over time and continue to set your own personal goals for your situation and build upon those over time.
0: And that is fantastic advice. So thank you so much for being here. And I look forward to sharing this episode with all of our listeners. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Mind Body Breakthroughs Podcast. We are now available on iHeart Podcast and all of your favorite podcast listening platforms. As always, hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. We love hearing from you. If you're interested in being a guest on our podcast, send us an email. Link in the show notes.